0: One thing I want to say really quickly before I start my sermon, when I sat down, my wife notified me that when I asked John and Terry to come up, I said, John and Terry Britting. Here's the thing. John and Terry are very much brothers in Christ, but when you're brothers and sisters in Christ, you do not have to take each other's last names. So it is John Britting and Terry Mulder, brothers in Christ, separate yet equal. That's the idea. So. With that, if you're joining us, we are in week two of our six-week series going through the book of Psalms, looking at one different genre of psalm each week. And last week, we looked at a psalm of wisdom. And for that, we looked at Psalm chapter one. And Psalm chapter one tells about this blessed man, this blessed man. And it tells us what this man does and what this man doesn't do. And the first thing we see is that this wise man refuses to walk Stand or sit in the path of the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers He refuses to participate in the things that those people participate in Now one thing we made clear is that this does not mean isolation from sinners This does not mean refusing to be in the presence of people who live differently than you do That's not the point at all If that was the point then jesus did not really get godly wisdom, which I don't think is the case It's not about isolating yourself from sinners. It's about refusing to participate in the same actions, the same course, the same path, the same way of living. That's the idea. That's what the godly, wise man does. So what exactly is wisdom in the first place? Some people view wisdom as making decisions that will make your life easier or making decisions that will make your life better. And that's wisdom. Well, really, that isn't godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is a little bit different than that. Godly wisdom, biblical wisdom, is about making choices that glorify God, even if those choices don't make your life immediately easier or immediately better. In fact, oftentimes they won't make your life easier or better. But godly wisdom is about making godly choices. So he refuses to stand, walk or sit in the path of sinners and the wicked and the scoffers. But what does he do? Well, the psalmist says that he plants himself next to streams of living water. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in its season. And we talked about the imagery of how trees in that time, in that place, the season that they bore fruit was also the driest season of the year. And so if you wanted your tree to bear fruit, you couldn't just plant it in the middle of nowhere and trust in rainfall. You had to plant it close to a body of water where it could have consistent nourishment, consistent refreshment, consistent relief. And if it didn't have that, the tree wouldn't last. It would wither away. And so we talked about the three streams of godly wisdom, the three streams that we as followers of Christ are called to plant ourselves next to. And those were Scripture, number one. The man said he meditated on the law day and night. Number two is the Spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, you have God's Spirit living inside of you, convicting you, guarding you, guiding you. Tap into that stream. And then the third one was community. Being a part of followers of Christ in a community. Being a part of that community where people are striving for the same godly wisdom that you're striving for. Those are the three streams that we talked about and the overarching thing we noticed about this guy Where his wisdom began the source of his wisdom was a fear of god Proverbs nine ten says that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom This man revered and respected and loved god Every part of god That's why this man had wisdom But then we talked about that even though wisdom begins with the fear of God, wisdom finds its completion in Christ. Paul says that all the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom are found in Christ. And if there's one piece of wisdom that you take seriously, it's that. James says, ask God for that wisdom. I pray that you have done that, that you are seeking that wisdom, that you're asking God for it. So that brings us to where we are today. Week two, we're done with wisdom. The genre that we're going to be looking at today is lament. Now, lament is not a word that we use a whole lot in our everyday vocabulary. But the word lament, a psalm of lament, is a psalm that is used during a time of affliction or trouble. A prayer that was prayed during trouble. A song that was sung during hardship to somehow bring comfort to the person who's praying it or singing it. That's a psalm of lament. And over one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament. It is by far the most common genre we have in the psalms. Every time you open up to the psalms, there's a good chance that you'll find a lament somewhere, a prayer of someone who's suffering, a prayer of someone who's pouring out their heart to God. In this case, we're going to be looking at psalms 42 and 43. And we're looking at two psalms because at one time in history, many scholars believe that these, this was just one psalm. That for some reason it got split up into two psalms now, but originally it was just one psalm. And you'll see why when we read it. There are some definite similarities. And there's some debate about the context of these psalms. Some people believe that this is a psalm about David. That was written by David or about David as he was fleeing from his son Absalom. You see, late in in David's life, his son Absalom rebelled against him and he tried to steal the throne from his father by force. So David had to flee Jerusalem and he was on the run. He was hiding out, being chased down like a dog. And these Psalms are his prayers to God, wondering why this has happened to him, asking God to deliver him. That's one thought. The other thought, would be that these psalms were written during just a general time of exile. These are psalms that may have been used during the Babylonian exile, when God's people, the Israelites, were taken away from their homeland, taken away from everything they knew, taken away from their culture, their identity, and they're dragged away to this foreign land. And they are supposed to forget everything they knew. They are supposed to completely assimilate to Babylonian culture, To where they no longer have an identity of their own. And it says here the authors of the psalm are the sons of Korah. Korah would have been a priest. And the thought goes that the sons of Korah were also priests. And so this psalm was written by priests taken to Babylon. Who are mourning the fact that their culture, their traditions, their identity is fading away. And they're longing for things to be different. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Psalms 42 and 43. About halfway through your Bible is where you'll find those. And I'm going to start reading in verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist uses this imagery of a deer panting for streams of water. Now, last week we talked about being a tree planted next to streams of water and how you couldn't trust in rainfall. But here's the thing. There were times when the droughts were really, really, really bad. Even the streams would dry up. It wouldn't just be the mainland that didn't have rain that dried up. The streams themselves would dry up. And the psalmist uses this imagery of this deer going from stream to stream, hoping to find relief, hoping to find nourishment. And yet every stream the deer goes to is dry. And as I read this, I couldn't help but picture the old cartoons where someone's wandering in the desert and they see an oasis up ahead and they drop everything and they run to it because there's palm trees and clear blue water that looks great to drink. And the closer they get to it, they realize it's just a mirage. The relief isn't there that they thought was there. It was all a hallucination. And what we see here is this deer looking for relief. And every place he goes, he thinks, maybe I'll find that relief. Maybe I'll find that nourishment. And yet, it isn't there. Every time. He gets his hopes up, only to have them dashed over and over and over again. If you know anything about pain, if you know anything about hardship, you know what it's like. To be that deer panting for streams of water. Maybe you're going through a divorce. And you think that time is finally starting to heal you. But then all of a sudden you hear that song that you used to dance to. And all the pain comes rushing back. You thought you had found relief only to have it snatch away from you. Maybe you have a physical ailment of some sort. And you think that you're finally getting better. You think that you're finally starting to heal. And then you get home and that blinking light on the answering machine is on. And it's your doctor. And he asks you to call back to get the test results. And you know it doesn't sound good. You just have this feeling in your gut. And you thought the relief had come, but then all of a sudden, it's snatched away from you. Maybe you just lost a loved one. And you're missing that person. But once again, like the divorced person, you think that time is finally healing you. But then you open up a photo album. And all the memories come running back to you. And you think about all the things You missed you think about all the things you wish you would have said to them Before they were gone We know pain Pain is pain regardless of how the hardship is different for each person We all know suffering It's there We've all experienced it We've all been that deer panting for streams of water looking for relief And the only thing worse than dealing with pain and not having relief is when you think you have relief and then it's snatched away from you at the last minute. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when that happens to you? Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? The sons of Korah, they're talking about how much mourning they've experienced and how much pain they feel. And on top of that, the relief they were looking for is snatched away from them, but then the people around them mock them. They say, where is your God? Why isn't he helping you? Why would a loving God let this happen to you? Clearly, he's not as loving as you thought he was, is he? Well, maybe you might not have people mocking you saying that, but maybe you're asking those questions. Where is God? Why am I dealing with this? Why am I having this pain? Why am I facing this hardship? Why is God silent? And you're doubting. And you're scared. And you're hurting. And the streams of water that you're looking for are nowhere to be found. Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude... Keeping festival. The priests are recalling what things used to be like before this exile happened. They used to worship God freely. Everyone used to celebrate with them. Worshipping God was the highlight of their day. And yet, here they are, and they don't get to do that anymore. And all they have are memories that are fading a little bit each day. All they have are memories. Maybe your hardship is not a divorce or a physical ailment, or the death of a loved one, or a job loss, maybe your hardship is the fact that things just aren't the way they used to be. You miss the way things used to be. All of a sudden, your kids are getting older, and they're moving out of the house, and you can't really control them anymore. And they're no longer the babies you thought they once were. That hurts. Maybe you're not as quick on your feet as you used to be and you can't do the things that you loved. Maybe you're not as quick in your mind and you're embarrassed about it and it hurts. Maybe your pain is just the fact that you long for things to go back to normal and yet every tick of the clock, they get a little bit different and you go farther and farther away from the way things used to be. You're looking for relief and you can't find it the tick of that clock becomes torture because you just wish things would go back to normal. What do you do in that situation? What do you do when people mock you and say, where is your God? What do you do when you ask those questions of where is God? Why isn't he helping me? Why is he silent? All you can really do is have hope. But it's easier to say than it is to do. When you're facing those hardships look at verse five Why are you cast down? O my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in god for I shall again praise him My salvation and my god It's almost as if the psalmist is trying to talk himself in to having hope Trying to talk himself in to still trusting god even though everything around him tells him that it's ridiculous The psalmist is trying to keep hope, trying to keep faith, trying to continue trusting in this God who he thinks may have forgotten about him. Hope in God. Easier said than done. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. I agree with C.S. Lewis, but at the same time, sometimes when you're hurting, it doesn't feel like God is shouting. It feels like God is silent. But maybe he's shouting after all. Maybe he's just not shouting in the way that you thought he was. Continuing verse 6, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This past week, I started rereading a novel that I had to read in college called Silence by Shusaku Endo. And the novel is based on a true story about Portuguese missionaries that travel to Japan in the 1600s to preach Christ to the Japanese people under a government that is very, very much opposed to Christianity. And so these priests go over and the persecution is intense. And the priests watch as two men who were leading an underground church in a small Japanese village. They watch as these two men are dragged out of their huts by the authorities. And they are told that they need to apostatize. They need to deny their faith. They need to renounce their faith. They are forced to step on a picture of Christ, to trample on Christ. And if they do that, their lives will be spared. No one else will suffer. And yet the two men refuse to trample on this image of Christ. And their punishment is that they are taken out into the sea, not too far out. They could still see land. The villagers could still see them out in the water. And they're tied to stakes that are planted in the sand. And then during the daytime, the water only comes up to about their waists. But then at night when the tide comes in, for hours, the water is up to their chin. And they have to try and reach for air For hours and hours and hours and the waves are crashing against them the waves are drilling them And slowly but surely as they feel like they're drowning The mental and the physical exhaustion Eventually kill them sometimes after days or even a week When you're dealing with hardship, you might not literally be in the middle of the ocean But you probably feel like you're drowning even though you're looking for streams of water, even though you're looking for relief, at the same time, you feel like you're drowning. You feel like you can barely keep your head above water. And you're gasping for air. And yet you're tied to the stake and you can't move. The relief that you're looking for is nowhere near. Sometimes pain feels that way. In another one of his books, C.S. Lewis compared pain to a dentist's chair. And he said, no matter how hard you grip the arm, the arm things, I can't remember that word, arm things, the drill keeps on drilling. The pain doesn't stop. The pain doesn't go away. No matter what you try to do, the pain is there. It's not getting any easier. You may feel like that. You may feel like you're drowning. The waves and the breakers are going over you. What do you do in that situation? Because it doesn't appear as though God is there It seems as though he's silent It seems as though if he really loved you, he would do something to help And yet here you are tied to that stake Barely keeping your head above water Continuing on in verse 8 By day the lord commands his steadfast love And at night his song is with me a prayer to the god of my life I say to god my rock. Why have you? forgotten me. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And finally in verse 11 there's one more attempt at talking himself into hope, talking himself into trust. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. For a second time, he tries to talk himself into trusting. He tries to convince himself that God is there. It may feel as though he's not there, but I know he is. I know he hears my cries. I know he knows my pain, and yet things don't change. Picking up in Psalm 43, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. The psalmist hits a low in verse 2. Why have you rejected me? But then there's a shift in verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. There's a confidence in verses 3 and 4 that you didn't see earlier in the passage. You didn't see in Psalm 42 so much. You didn't see at all in Psalm 43 until this point. And then he closes again, verse 5, the same line. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The laments are the biggest genre of the Psalms, 50 of them, 50-some-odd laments, every single one of them. In some way, shape, form, or fashion, there is some little tiny glimmer that God is there. That there is still trust. That there is still hope. That there's still faith. Every single one of those laments has that. It might just be a glimmer. It might barely be alive. But it's there. Someone who understood a lot about pain and a lot about suffering was Job. Job was a godly man, a righteous man who, through no fault of his own, lost everything. He was completely innocent. He loses his livelihood. He loses his home. He loses his family. And he continually mourns and asks God why this has happened to him. What did he do to bring this hardship upon himself because he can't figure it out? He can't figure out what he did to deserve this. And as Job's friends come to him and they say, Job, if you will just repent of whatever hidden sin it is that you're dealing with, then everything will get better. Just repent. Just admit that you did something wrong. Get over your pride. And yet Job repeatedly says, guys, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And what does he say in chapter 13, verse 15? He says though he slay me, I will hope in him Yet I will argue my ways to his face Job maintained his innocence He maintained that he didn't do anything to deserve this punishment And he says even if god kills me And things never get better I will continue hoping in him I will continue hoping in god Even if things never change, even if things never get any better in this life, Job says, even if he slays me, I will continue hoping in him. You know, sometimes I think in Christianity, we have a flawed understanding of what mourning and grieving look like because we're told that we're going to heaven. So clearly we shouldn't be upset about anything. We should be happy all the time. We have nothing to be sad about. Put on a happy face we go to church and when people say how are you doing? We say we're doing great and yet inside we know that there's something wrong And I think at times whether we realize it or not We have this sense that if we admit that we're hurting If we admit that we have doubt if we admit that we're worried if we admit that we feel like god is silent Somehow we're compromising our faith Somehow we're letting down The fellow Christians around us somehow we're letting down God if we're honest And yet the psalms of lament They are honest But at the same time There's a glimmer of hope in them You see dealing with hardship and dealing with suffering as a christian is not about pretending it isn't there It's not about suppressing it. It's not about in being denial about it. It's about having hope in spite of it that's the Christian view of suffering. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells the people in Thessalonica not to grieve as those who have no hope. He doesn't tell them don't grieve. He doesn't tell them don't mourn. They're dealing with the death of followers of Christ. People in this church are sad because they're concerned that those who die before Christ returns may not get to partake in all the rewards that Christ has to offer. And Paul tells them, no, don't worry about it. They'll be fine. And you should mourn. You should mourn the loss of those people, but you should not mourn them as those who have no hope. We don't see in Scripture that we're not supposed to grieve. We don't see in Scripture that we're supposed to lie about the pain that we're feeling. We don't see in Scripture that we're supposed to put on a smile and pretend that everything's okay. We see in scripture that as we mourn, as we suffer, as we grieve, we do it with hope. That's what sets the Christian apart in those times of suffering. That's what set Job apart in his times of suffering. He suffered. He grieved. He mourned. He complained. He was hurt. And yet all the while, he refused to give up hope. He refused to stop trusting. That's what a biblical lament looks like. Being honest, being willing to admit it all, being willing to pour out your soul, but all the while keeping that hope and keeping that trust. In John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living Water. Go back to that deer looking for streams of water, panting for streams of water, looking for relief, and yet everywhere he goes, he doesn't find it. Jesus says, if you trust in me, if you believe in me, you won't have to search for streams of water anymore. You won't have to search for relief in the world around you because the relief that I offer lives inside of you. And no one can take that away from you. No matter how bad your circumstances get, no matter how much you suffer, no matter how bad the hardships are, whether you brought it upon yourself or not, the relief that you need will be found in me. And no one can take that away from you. No matter what. If you're dealing with hardship, trust in Christ. Put your faith in him. And then you too, can have hope that even if things don't get better in this life, there's a life to come. And reward will come. Through the pain and the suffering and the torture that we get thrown at us at times in this life, we look forward to the next. Because we know that it doesn't end here. And Christ offers us that. With the cross and with the resurrection, with his body and blood that was shed for us, with the sins that were paid for on our behalf, we can find hope in Christ no matter what. Because our hope goes beyond this life. It goes farther. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come here And worship you And god at times It's hard to come here and worship you When we're mourning when we're grieving When hardship is coming when we feel like we're drowning When we're looking for relief and we can't find it And god we may feel as though you are silent We may feel as though you have rejected us. We may feel as though you have abandoned us We may have our doubts and our fears and our worries But god we know That you're there We know that even if things don't get better in this life We can trust in the fact that you are there in our suffering That you are right there with us Just because you don't change our circumstances doesn't mean you're not there And god, I pray that you can teach every single one of us To have faith in you no matter what to trust in you no matter what To place our hope in you when all the evidence around us tells us it tells us it's ridiculous I pray that you'll help us with that God I pray that any suffering any pain any hardship that people are feeling will be alleviated I pray that you can do that. I know you can do that But at the same time god We hope in you no matter what our circumstances are We love you We thank you for jesus We thank you that he knows the suffering That we deal with He knows even more than that. We thank you for him and we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you're interested in placing your faith in Christ and discovering those streams of water living inside of you, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the side of the room if you'd like to talk to them. If you have a prayer request, they'd be happy to talk to you about that. If you have questions about our church, they'd be happy to talk to you about that as well.